This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by, uh, by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Thank you. You could make the case that Jesus Christ is the most controversial figure in all of human history. Just say his name today, too, and you will get a reaction. Some might think he's a really good teacher, a moral man. Uh, Some might be really angered and irritable just at the mention of his name. Some might think of his name only as a curse word. Some might fall at their feet, rarely, actually, sadly, but rarely. There's a a quote that C.S. Lewis spoke in Mere Christianity, wrote about, and many of you have heard it before, but I want to repeat it again because it just speaks so much of what Jesus thought of himself and how he does not allow us to think of him merely as a moral teacher. He says this, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You see, you can't think of Jesus this way because not only were the people around him puzzled, perplexed, amazed, enraged. They were incredibly impacted by him. But it wasn't just the people who were impacted by him. It was also the spiritual realm who was impacted by him. Because wherever he walked, demons popped up left and right. Theologian Michael Reeves, I want to quote him because he has such an insightful thought about this idea. He says, No wonder the world seemed so full of the demon-possessed in those days. All hell had been summoned to take up arms against this great prince of heaven. No wonder the Gospels record so many who were amazed and astonished by him, as if they were witnesses to a volcano. His presence was an apocalypse, a cataclysm, an earth-shaking upheaval of all things. God with us. If we could only realize just whom we are trusting in. He is the Lord of the universe. When he walked this earth, everyone was impacted. He was the volcano. He was the one whom everyone was speechless around or just filled with all sorts of anger. And the question is why? Who was he that created such emotive reactions by not just those who were his contemporaries, but even today, even to this day, he is not a neutral figure. C.S. Lewis is right. You cannot just think of him as simply a moral teacher and 
not just that we can't think of him that way from an intellectual perspective, but really our world doesn't take him that way. Everyone responds to him. So here we have to ask these fundamental questions. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe we don't ask these really basic questions enough. The first question is, who is Jesus? Verses 6 through 8, John tells us and answers this, answers us this question. The second is, why believe Jesus? In verses 9 through 12. So we're going to really answer those two very basic questions of what it means to be a Christian. We're going to look first at that first question by saying, who is Jesus? In verses 6 through 8, John gives us the answer. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, before we answer this question, I want to answer a question that you probably have, which is, it just seems as though John keeps on repeating himself throughout this letter. And as you've been following along, if you've been with us throughout the beginning of this series all the way to now, you might have thought of John to be really redundant. You might be thinking, okay, John, I get it. I know that, one, I need to love God. I need to obey him. I need to love our brothers and sisters. And I need to see Jesus rightly. I need to have a right doctrine of Jesus. It's almost as if we, we really feel this, I know this already. I get it. You know, why does he keep on repeating himself time and time again? Well, I think the reason he repeats himself to the church is in that we hear the same message regularly about the gospel. That is to say that we so quickly want to move on. We think to ourselves, I know this already. But if we really say, I know this already, then why do we forget so quickly? Why do we forget as soon as we hear the good news, you can be convicted, you can weep, you can cry, you can say, I'm, I'm a changed person, I'll never forget this. And then as soon as the first conflict that comes along, we forget. We forget the very things that we learned last week, last moment, last minute. See, the Bible continuously reiterates points. And whenever it does, it does so because it's saying this is essential truth. This is God's word. And he wants us to really sink this deep into our souls so that we wouldn't forget because, frankly, we're so prone to forget. And we forget the most basic of truths. So let us not move so quickly. Let us not complain, perhaps, and think to ourselves, all right, I know this. I've advanced. That's usually one of the greatest problems of our hearts, and it leads us to great troubles. So instead, John wants us to go back again and remember and ask the question, who is Jesus? And he wants us to focus on that. And that's what he does in verses 6 through 8. You have to realize that John wants us to show us that there are three witnesses that speak the sp story of Jesus, that points to him. And it's important that we recognize who and what these three witnesses are. Two of them are personifications. That is to say, they're objects. They're not people 
but they're actually symbols. And those symbols represent something. The first symbol is the symbol of water. And without a doubt, water, when it comes to Jesus, keeps in mind the baptism of Jesus. Baptism and water is so intricately linked. We're told, according to Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, Matthew records this. Uh, John the Baptist, who was um, baptizing Jesus, had come and Jesus was coming to John for baptism. And John said to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When Jesus received John's baptism, it was a baptism of repentance. The water symbolized repentance, a change, a turning away from sin, a turning towards God. But Jesus was a person of perfect righteousness, sinlessness, not sinfulness. So why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? That's John's point is, I need to be baptized by you. You're the one, you're the savior. So why do you need to be water baptized? Jesus is telling us that by going before John, he's showing John, the world, and us that he had to become like us in order to save us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 describes it this way. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And here's a key phrase. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In order to become a high priest, a mediator, he had to be exactly like us to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That was tied directly together. That is to say, the water points to Jesus being fully man, fully a human being. He would be tempted in every way and yet without sin. We see that in the desert in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is tempted by Satan. So the water is a symbol of Jesus' perfect life lived as a human being who needed to be baptized, not because he sinned, but because he, t- he would take on our very sins as a perfect human being. He had to be that human being to be the high priest, to be the one who would represent us, to be our mediator. But it wasn't just the water that was testifying to, to who Jesus was. And that's one witness, the water. The second is the blood. Jesus was not only the one who would be the perfect representation of us by becoming like us, but he would also sacrifice himself for us to atone for our sin. Testament in the Mosaic law always showed the picture of how blood atones for sin. That happened in the garden. That happened amongst Israel. And ultimately would happen through God's own son. Let me point you to two other verses in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then likewise in chapter 13, verse 12 of Hebrews, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Let's go back to the question, the fundamental question. Who is Jesus? First, he is fully man fully human being. 
He had to be. He had to know what we were like, what it was to be exactly like us, to take on the burden of our sins, or else he would be so other from us that he wouldn't ever understand. He wouldn't be able to empathize with us. He wouldn't be able to, as Hebrews describes, suffer when he's tempted, to help us when we're being tempted, when we're suffering. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is the water testifying to who Jesus is, but the blood shows us that Jesus, who is God, should die for our sins. He is the only one who could take our place righteously, perfectly. His blood shed for us, atoning for us, substituting himself for us, makes him the righteous sacrifice who substituted himself and took our place. And the blood points us to that. That is to say that we can't have just one or the other. We need both, and we have both. Both constantly, eternally point to all that Jesus has done, all that he has accomplished. But it doesn't stop there. There's a a third witness, and that third witness is the Spirit. All three witnesses are there because there was probably a group of people in John's church. They were called the Gnostics. They believed in a hidden message. Somehow they had this secret knowledge to be truly true believers. And because of that, they actually could not believe that Jesus. So this is how off they were. They believed that Jesus was a man. And when he was baptized, the Spirit of God came into him. And then right before he was crucified, the Spirit of God left him. And the reason they had this view is because they just couldn't believe that God could die. That Jesus as God could die on the cross. Paul describes the cross according to 1 Corinthians 1, as foolishness. It is foolish if you don't understand sin, you don't understand the depth of it and what it takes to rescue us from it, and you don't understand the whole character and person of God. But when you do understand everything there is to know about God, what the Bible says about God and us, that's when you begin to really appreciate all that he has done. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says these awesome words, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He's talking about Christians there. He's saying that we are blameless. How can we, knowing what we're like internally, be blameless? The only way is that the blood and the water testify to the fact that Christ has taken our place. And so now when the Father looks at us, we understand that we are free. And the cost that he paid, if we could only realize that cost, how great that cost was. And that cost was so great, and yet it still led him down the road of crucifixion, of atonement. Sir Isaac Newton, many of you know him as the mathematician, physicist, and philosopher. He was working on one of his most seminal works on the universe. 
He was laboring over it over candlelight for many weeks. And near him was his beloved dog. One day he got up from his desk and left the room. And as dogs do, the dog leapt up when his master got up, finally, from his desk, and also left the room. But as he left, he knocked over the candle. The candle lit all of his papers on fire. All that he had worked upon, that he had laboriously worked upon for weeks upon weeks, gone in ashes. And so, as he looked, as he came back and saw the ashes, his heart was broken. He wept as he pet his beloved dog. And he said this, he said, to his dog, you will never, never know what you have done. Maybe the dog had some idea. Maybe some idea. Because, you know, dogs at least sense sadness. But really, he had no idea. He had no idea what he had done. You know, infinitely more. Our God suffered, bled, died. And we might say that, oh, we understand. We might worship him. But really, we will never, never know what we have done. Not really. We'll never understand it. No matter how much we mourn over our sin, no matter how much we grieve, we will never, never know what we have done. Those witnesses, those two, the water and the blood, are there to show us at least a little bit to try to get us to understand Because unless we understand what we have done, we'll never appreciate him. Not enough. But there is that third witness. That third witness being the Spirit. And the Spirit also is the one who hovers over the waters. We're told that this Spirit, and again, I spoke about the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago as a person. He is not a little bird. He doesn't just gently and sweetly come to us, perching on our hearts and saying, whistling and tweeting away, saying, oh, come and please, I hope you come and and worship Jesus. Listen to how the Holy Spirit is described in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's why a lot of people think the Holy Spirit, yes, the symbol of a dove, but do not think of that verse describing the Spirit of God as nothing more than a dove sort of floating and flying above the ocean. That's not what we're talking about here. Here, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we're, just, we're seeing the Spirit of God as the Creator. He's actually creating from the void and the formlessness, the dark, the deep. And he's actually creating all that we know to be this beautiful, splendid world. This same spirit who created the physical world also creates the spiritual world, meaning he recreates or he creates anew. Just as dark and deep and formless was life before the world and God creating. So too, far worse is the darkness and the formlessness of a sinful heart. 
far darker, actually, than the world before there was ever sin. And so the Holy Spirit hovers over that darkness, that void. And just like as God does, he says, let there be light, and there's light. We become a new creation. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What happens is the Holy Spirit comes and he hovers and he empowers and brings light, life from that which was utterly dark and hideous. And he creates and reborns and renews. It's not just a renewal. It's a totally new creation. And so the Spirit of God, he is in line attesting to with the work of God the Son as fully human, the work of God the Son as the atoning Savior, and then the Holy Spirit and all three. And one thing we know is that when the Bible talks about three witnesses, you know, in the Mosaic Law, it took two to three witnesses to affirm that which is true. Well, what John is doing is saying there are three witnesses. He is attesting these three The Spirit, the water, and the blood, they attest to the full truth that, for one, we do not know, we'll never know and be able to appreciate what God has done for us. But he has done it and he has attested to it. And there is no doubt, there should never be a doubt in our heart and mind of what God has done. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And we have these three witnesses attesting to it time and time again. So who is Jesus? Never doubt what Jesus is, who he is, what he has done. The Spirit affirms that. The second question is, why believe him? Verses 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12 gives us the answer to that question. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony of that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. We really answered this question by the first question. Why believe in Jesus? Because the water, the blood, the spirit all point to the truth. Jesus is the one that who he is and what he has done on the cross allows us, as we know from that grand verse of John 3.16, that we have eternal life in him. And John repeats himself here in verses 9 through 12. In the last verse of verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So if these three witnesses, what John is saying is, if these three witnesses were provided by God to point to his Son, and yet we still refuse to believe in Jesus, we still refuse to trust him, then John says that we're making God out to be a liar. Because he has done everything possible to make sure that 
we do believe, we do trust, we do place our hope in him. So either you believe and you act on that belief that therefore we decide and we are changed and we are transformed and we'll move forward and we'll press on, we will not give up, we will not yield because we know it to be true. We have these witnesses, these three witnesses and so therefore we will act upon that. Either we do that or we're calling God a liar. There's only, I mean, that's, again, as John so often does, he, he's pretty blunt. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he's, because he's gone through so much to make sure that you do believe in him. So you can't just simply say, I don't believe, I don't trust. And even if your actions don't back it up, then you're making God out to be a liar. But when we believe in Jesus, when we believe what John says in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, when we believe as the three witnesses proclaim, then not only do we affirm God to be true, but John tells us that we have life with him forever. And that's a promise that we have and that's not a fantasy, it is reality. And therefore, not a moment is wasted when we believe in Jesus. No trial, no difficulty. Let me close with this story from Ravi Zacharias, who uh, died this past week and is now with the Lord. He tells a story about a Hindu man who was very devout in his faith. And he was a man of impeccable character. He was very moral as a Hindu, um, because of his beliefs, and he held a very high post in India's finance ministry. He had spent many, many hours with Ravi Zacharias, uh, just probing Ravi about spiritual matters, questioning him, challenging him. He had developed cancer, and then he had been admitted to a hospital. His, father, his family had gathered around him because they knew this was the end of his days. He wouldn't last that much longer. So as he lay there really weak in his last hours of his life, he suddenly arose from his bed and spoke clearly to his family saying, I've lain here in bed asking myself the most important question. What or who is the way to God? I've pondered this for years. You know how faithful I have been in my service to the temple and to my belief. But I've come to this all important moment and question. What is the way? Who is the way? He paused as they leaned forward to listen, and he continued, I have thought, reflected, and have finally concluded there is only one way, and I want you to understand I am making that commitment. His voice lifted, and his passion deepened, and he said, That way is Jesus. His family was stunned into silence following his declaration. And then he did something even more remarkable that left his family even further stunned. He turned to his wife, married for more than 50 years, whose marriage had been arranged. They had raised two sons together. And he said to his wife, I have never told you that I love you, but I want you to know that I do love you and that you are my sweetheart. His wife was both embarrassed and dismayed because she had never heard such words from her husband in all those years. And she had no idea as to how to respond. After those words, he breathed his last and he died. 
Everyone stood around and just stood speechless. Ravi Zacharias comments, How is it that a man who had heard almost nothing of Jesus until, until he was way well into his middle years came to this conclusion? How is it that a man so devout in Hinduism, whose house I visited frequently, where there was always an altar set aside to the pantheon of divinities in Hinduism, came to such a clear conviction of salvation through Jesus? How does one so totally consumed by his faith and active in the temple come to the end of his life and take a fork in the road? There is really no answer other than to say that there were three witnesses. When he heard those three witnesses, when he pondered, when he considered, he came to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He came to heed John's words when John said, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Once he hit that fork, he decided, I want the Son. I want life. Why believe in Jesus? Because to do so is to meet the one who will satisfy your soul, who will bring you life, who will bring you home, who will bring you eternal joy, who will be with you when you rejoice with your heavenly Father forever. And may you never forget that. John has worked so hard to pound this deep into our forgetful minds and souls that we would remember all that Jesus Christ is and all that he has done for us. To continue that remembrance, we want to prepare our hearts for communion. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are with us, that your word reminds us that these three witnesses, the water, the blood, the spirit, all three show us that there is only one God, one Lord, one Savior. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Father, I pray that you would show all of us how wondrous it is to have the Son. And may we look at this time of communion as another pointer to the full reality that we want life with you through Jesus forever and ever. So thank you for your word and thank you for communion to point, to point us to that reality. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.